Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Welcome to this special edition of Out to Lunch Louisiana. I'm Peter Raschuti in New Orleans. I'm Christian Mader in Lafayette. And in Baton Rouge, I'm Stephanie Regal. Normally, we're the hosts of Out to Lunch in our respective cities. But during the course of the current public health crisis, we're joining forces from our respective home studios to bring you a statewide look at what's happening in the world of business and finance. The conversation in Louisiana is turning toward how and when businesses can reopen. When the French press reopens in Lafayette, we'll go back to hosting Out to Lunch there. Until then, they're doing curbside takeout, and you can get the regular French press menu items or family dinner delivered through Waiter or Grubhub and directly from the restaurant, 337-233-9449. Here in Baton Rouge, the restaurant that normally hosts out to lunch, Mansur's on the Boulevard, is open for pickup and delivery. You can order by calling them at 225-923-3366. In New Orleans, Commander's Palace is closed, but their wine cellar is open for pickup or Orleans Parish Delivery, with over 35,000 bottles for sale. Find out more at commanderspalace.com. On today's show, we're taking a look at what's opening up when and how Louisiana might change as a result of the experiences we've been through over the past couple of months. We're going to be talking about how distance learning and other challenges are changing education with Tanya Tetlow, president of Loyola University in New Orleans. We're going to be looking at what's going to happen to real estate, especially commercial real estate, with Baton Rouge realtor Matthew Laborde. And then there's the issue of what happens to retail. Yeah, with apologies for the medical metaphor, retail was already on life support before COVID-19 shut down practically every store in the country. If you weren't an online shopper before all of this, you probably are now. So now that we've all discovered how easy it is to order online and have everything show up at our door two days later, what happens to our mom and pop stores, our art galleries, and everything else that is typically relied on foot traffic? In Lafayette, we're in the process of finding out the answer to this question as stores are beginning to reopen. Anita Begno is CEO of the Lafayette Downtown Development Authority. You know, Anita, before the pandemic, the buzzword around downtown Lafayette was momentum. And most of that came from new residential projects and some big employers moving in. Um, you know, so, so much of what makes a downtown attractive for residents or diners or shoppers, right, the, the, the thing that makes retail happen uh, is the sense of place that really happens there. So how does momentum keep going when a downtown can't really be a place? a great question, Christian. I think this weekend with Virtual Festival International was a great example of how we're going to answer that question. Um, if you were down here this weekend, you noticed that some of the restaurants that continue to stay open are those who decided to do a pop-up over the weekend to serve festival fare um, had, you know, lines. Um, those lines were doing their best to use social distancing. We had a mixture of people with masks and no masks, but we had hundreds of people downtown spaced out across different blocks um, trying to be a part of the downtown community and, and being a part of in, investing in that retail aspect. So 
I think we saw that the desire is still there for downtowns to be a gathering place. And I think people in Louisiana in particular um, still um, hold that dear and want to gather. And so I think it's going to be a matter of figuring out how to repurpose our public spaces so that we can use social distancing. I like to say physical distancing because I don't want to be socially distant from people. Um, but um, I think it's going to be about repositioning our public spaces to be able to adhere to new guidelines, but still give people the experience of, of gathering, which is the purpose of a downtown. So, so you mentioned Festival International is a great example of this. So Festival International being the largest driver of tourism in, in the in the Acadiana market generally, and they kind of took it online uh, and, and did a heroic effort to make that work. I mean, but a lot of that traffic is really people, <clears throat> you know, who might be trying to go out to get, some, you know, get something to eat. Like I went and got a burger for, for my wife and my kid, you know, um, but, but I don't, I don't really know how that translates to the world of retail. And we had a, a couple of new retail shops open in downtown Lafayette. Um, Lafayette rolled out a safe shop policy, you know, kind of designed to, to reopen some businesses to some extent. I mean, are you seeing that retailers are finding a way to make this work when foot traffic really has a big impact on their bottom line? I think retail is probably going to be the bigger question mark versus restaurants um, because foot traffic is the driver of why someone makes a choice to come down here and window shop in various retail spaces. And so they have been doing efforts to be online. Uh, Lanyop Records, for instance, you can shop their entire catalog of records online. They got it up the day that um, the stay-at-home order was was put out, and they've seen steady business. But some of our our clothing shops, you know, it, it's difficult to have that shopping experience, um, that intimate shopping experience that you come downtown for online. And so I think folks like Ross from Gentry have done a great job of trying to figure out how to boost their online presence. But will it translate into enough sales to be a sustainable business? I think that's something that still we're going to have to figure out. You know, newer shops like Wild Child Wines, a retail shop in downtown Lafayette, is doing incredible. They've been able to shrink their hours um, and spend more time at home with their family. Um, but in a pandemic, I think everyone's trying to figure out where they can find some wine. You know, so they've done incredibly well. They got their inventory up really quickly online also. And uh, they've seen it, it translate into great sales online. Um, and, and, you know, those businesses that have more of a, um, um, a, a relationship with their customers um, they can lean on that right now and and convince them to support them during this time. Um, but I, I think it's a mixed bag, Christian, and we're definitely watching it closely, talking to our retailers regularly to see what's working and not working. Hi, Anita, this is Peter. I, I wanted to ask you about the other side. Uh, you've put a lot of effort into getting residents to move downtown. You have uh, a couple of great places over there. Does this whole thing change the momentum on that end? I mean, uh, seem like people, a lot of young people like the idea of living downtown. Uh, but, you know, now are people going to be more hesitant to live close together like that again? Peter, I, I wish I had a crystal ball and I could answer that right now so I could talk some, to some people who are investing at the moment before they, you know, make those decisions. But um, I think it remains to be seen. You know, Vermilion Lofts just finished construction right as COVID-19 was, was hitting our area. And they've got a number of tenants um, that are kind of waiting to see what happens. They've had a couple of folks move in, um, but certainly some of the interest that they've had previously have, has waned. Um, I think it's going to be um, about intentionality of hitting the right folks who are looking for that experience. They're, they sit in that right price point and they, they work downtown already or, or they really want to be in the center of town 
and hyper-focusing on them instead of trying to get the word out to everyone about the opportunities to live downtown. So I think intentionality and marketing, finding your target market um, and, and talking to them regularly and figuring out um, if they're still interested is going to help people make decisions right now and into the future. Anita, hey, this is Stephanie. You know, I, I wonder too, and in talking to restaurateurs and retailers and our, our downtown situation in Baton Rouge is much like yours in Lafayette, a revitalization success story. But, you know, even once they're allowed to reopen, uh, presumably, you know, in mid-May, do the will the numbers make sense? Can a restaurant make it with just 25% of the customers when it still has to pay the same amount of rent and the same utility bill every month and the food costs haven't gone down? I mean, at what point does it make more sense not to reopen? Do you hear that concern from the folks you're talking to? It's definitely a concern. You know, we have nearly 40 restaurants that were open uh, pre-COVID-19 and 16 bars in the downtown area. Will all of them make it? Again, I don't have that answer, but um, I think it's it's something we definitely need to be prepared for, that there's going to be transition. People are going to have to shift their business model from what traditionally worked because a 25% occupancy is not going to make a restaurant successful. They're not going to be able to have the appropriate staffing. Um, you know, the numbers just, like you said, aren't going to work. I, I think about Michelle Ezel, who I know you're familiar with. She has tsunamis in, in Lafayette and in Baton Rouge and in New Orleans. She kept the Lafayette one open. She shut down the Baton Rouge one immediately because it wasn't accessible to the street. I'm actually not sure what's going on in New Orleans at the moment with tsunami, but, um, you know, Michelle mentioned on a, on a call on our urban revitalization committee that we have in Lafayette that she was running a really expensive commissary kitchen. I mean, that's just not a model that's going to be sustainable and work into the future. But I think what's, what's true is that I go back to the use of public space. You know, if we think about um, our friends in European countries and, and the outdoor dining that they have, we've got a lot of great public space in downtown Lafayette that I think we need to figure out the right mix of repositioning while keeping people safe and distant enough from each other to ensure that safety, but also repurposing it so that restaurants who can only have 25% occupancy indoors can at least give people the option of to go and, and eat it downtown so they can still have that, you know, gathering experience, if you will, um, while having to go food. Um, I also think that, that you're going to have a mixed bag of, of restaurants who, even though they are allowed to have 25% occupancy inside, that feels like a real liability um, and a real concern for them, not only for their customers, but also for their employees. So, you know, I, I don't know, Stephanie, I, I think we're going to have to figure out how to reinvent ourselves in a way. And I don't know necessarily what that looks like today, but there's a lot of really creative people in downtown Lafayette the most successful restaurants and bars are those entrepreneurial mindset folks who have already taken risks and they're pivoting already. And so I have to believe that they're going to continue to do that and, and find a way if it's possible for their business model to, to change and still work, they're going to do it. And those that can't won't. I'd like to ask you a little bit on the note of reinvention and something that Peter actually touched on a second ago was the idea that, that you know, there are, there were sort of existing consumer trends that, that showed that, you know, broadly, I guess we'd say millennials or whatever demographic term you want to use, we're kind of interested in living in downtown areas, right? One of the things that we're starting to see is this question coming out in sort of the urbanist press about whether this would be the moment that 
people leave the big city and they come home to, to your mid-tier small markets because you got broadband access, you can work from home. I mean, to some extent, if you want to take advantage of that, you've got to sort of be aggressive, right? So do you see a play sort of flipping this a, l- a little bit to the outlook, a play for downtown, maybe Lafayette more broadly, to actually market itself as a work-from-home mecca for, for people who may have you know, decamped to a bigger city? I don't think Matthew's going to like my answer to this question necessarily, um, but I, I think it's something that we certainly need to find our niche as, as Lafayette and downtown Lafayette specifically in how we go out and market ourselves to businesses. We've been doing that and honing that for a number of years. I think this is just an opportunity to figure out, are we the right place to do that? Uh, Those conversations need to be had, Christian. I think they're good conversations to have. I still think that your companies that um, are gonna thrive because they're gonna bring people together to accomplish a common goal are gonna look for that commercial space. Um, They're gonna want that commercial space. They might have some sort of hybrid where you're working from home 50% of the time, or you have an option to work from home 25% of the time. But you know, a lot of people who were thinking about residential in downtown Lafayette were still being risk takers and they were trying to be pioneers to get ahead of things like CGI, making the decision to, to locate 400 more jobs in downtown Lafayette. And that is still moving forward. And so there's still gonna be that market that that company wants a physical presence. They could have been online years ago. You know, they're, they're doing conference calls across the globe already, and they have been. I talked to Will Labar on a, on a Zoom call, and he said, yeah, I mean, I'm used to this all the time. But, you know, he still went into an office to do that, and they still gathered at a table to have those more important conversations that required a few bright minds in the room together. So, you know, I think um, Lafayette can certainly position itself as a, you could work from, from your apartment on Vermilion and, and Johnston Street and for any company in the world, but I still think there's going to be that strong aspect of attorneys' offices and banking institutions and hopefully technology companies that only continue to grow that are going to want some semblance of a physical presence. And they're going to, they're going to hire people who want to live close to their jobs. And so um, I think it's going to be a matter of figuring out the balance and all those things. And I'm not the smartest person to do that. It's going to take a lot of different people to have that conversation and find the right balance. But I'm really interested to hear from Matthew about his outlook on commercial real estate because I'm hearing a lot of different things right now, but I think people are still trying to wrap their arms around it. Anita Begno is CEO of the Downtown Development Authority in Lafayette. Anita, thanks so much for joining us in Out to Lunch, Louisiana. Thanks for having me. You're listening to a special edition of Out to Lunch, Louisiana with Christian Mader in Lafayette, Peter Raschuti in New Orleans, and I'm Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge. One of the changes that has come with this health crisis is the discovery many of us have made about working from home. At first, it was something of a novelty. It felt like a long weekend. But now that we've mastered video meetings and found strategies for balancing work and family, we've discovered that not commuting has distinct advantages. As businesses open up, many people who have unshackled themselves from the office are looking to continue the work from home habit. And from the employer side, if productivity stays the same and you don't need office space, well, that's a significant saving. That might all sound great, but even if just 20% of a stayed home and office space and everything that goes with it shrinks by 20%, like attendance at the food court and the downtown gym, what does that knockoff effect do to the economy? 
Let's start with what it might do to the commercial real estate market. Matthew Laborde is a commercial real estate broker at Elephant Realty in Baton Rouge. And Matthew, we, we've touched on this with Anita. How do you see the real estate market changing as a result of the changes in our work habits? So for the office market specifically, we're already starting to see it where clients that were looking for space, uh, for office space, are now wanting uh, their employees to work from home and they want flexible space where they can go and meet clients, they can have conference uh, room access, but they are opting out of having a full long-term traditional office lease. Wow, and you're seeing that already, Matthew. Already. And, and in Baton Rouge, we yeah. know, for instance, that our office market had a lot of inventory before any of this. It did, yeah. So this is, uh, I guess, not a great sign long-term for occupancy rates and lease rates for office. But still, there's certain employees uh, and there's certain businesses that are not going to opt for um, flexible space or working from home that are still going to really want an office and a physical presence. What about, Matthew, the, the multifamily sector, you know, and the commercial? I mean, they're going to be affected as well. Yeah. So talking to our apartment owner clients, their rents were great for March, right? It was before the uh, COVID-19 pandemic and the stay-at-home order was issued. But April, on average, rents collections have been down 5 to 10%. And so the longer this continues into May, the, the larger that's expected to grow. Matthew, this is Peter. I want to ask you about the term you use, that flexible office space. What, what does that mean? Well, flexible office space, the most famous example of it is WeWork. Uh, in the Baton Rouge market, we have Regis, in New Orleans, Regis. Uh, but, uh, but it's flexible where you can lease out an office, two offices on a month-to-month basis and have shared access to a reception and a conference room. So in the short term, those uh, businesses are going to be uh, adversely impacted because no, those are month-to-month leases and no one needs it right now. Okay, so you're going to see a lot of those tenants that were working in those short-term arrangements, they're going to just work from home and they're going to cancel their lease at least temporarily until the health concerns uh, are lifted, right, or, or, or alleviated somehow. But in the longer term, you're going to see people looking for flexible options that used to be in permanent options and that's going to help those types of businesses. So I got to imagine that there has to be, you know, an entrepreneurial play here. If I'm a, you know, a, a landowner or a building owner who you know, has some flexibility in how I could arrange a space or, I mean, what in your mind could work, you know, as we kind of go in a three-phased approach into re- reopening the economy, like the extent to which a landlord or, or, or uh, tenants can work out something kind of new form of arrangement that actually makes sense in a post-pandemic or mid-pandemic environment? Yeah, I don't see any drastic changes to the way landlords operate. And besides keeping their space cleaner, you know, health concerns being a bigger, uh, having a bigger play in tenants and what they're looking for. But in terms of shared office space, it was already a thing prior to COVID-19. Like I said, there's going to be a dropout in demand for that from a certain segment that was, instead of working from home, having that temporary office. But 
the that's going to be replaced by people that had the permanent offices looking for the temporary options and it's on net it's not going to really increase the demand for temporary office space so i don't think you're going to see a lot of landlords changing their their space or uh, uh making any change to their business model based off of this Matthew, I think about all of the, the vacant big box stores and retail spaces that we've been talking about for years as we've seen the, you know, retail shift towards online. Now, do you, you anticipate seeing a lot of vacant office space, large commercial buildings downtown just increasingly vacant? And, and with that, how long does it take, I mean, for a large tenant to be able to cancel its lease or or you know decrease the amount of space it takes from say you know twenty thousand square feet to five thousand right well now so so you hit on the head is is when they're uh when the tenant's expiration is right so uh for example if you have a tenant that has five years left on their term they're likely not going to be able to make any change for a while so right now office tenants still paying rent still occupying space Nothing's going to happen quickly. We're going to see things happen quickly is in the retail sector because businesses that are shut down just don't have an option. Luckily, office tenants are still, for the most part, operating, still, uh, for the most part, making a good percentage of the income that they did prior to the pandemic. Uh, so you're not going to see any fast changes in the office sector. That's mostly going to be in retail. Interesting. How much can are you hearing from landlords out there and from you know the owners of these large properties how much concerns yeah uh, I would say that my calls are 50 50 in terms of uh, uh, landlords and tenants being extremely pessimistic and having concerns and thinking that the uh, the sky is gonna fall and the other 50% are those opportunistics ones that are saying I've got cash, I've been waiting for something like this, some kind of dip to take advantage of it while uh, sellers might be motivated and uh, there might be opportunities out there. So I, I'm sort of curious, you know, are you getting wind of, you know, we've been doing some, not we, but, but you know, uh, business leaders in this area have been surveying businesses to get a sense of how long they could sustain at this level of economic decline. So I'm curious if you're getting a sense of how that looks in Baton Rouge and what that means for folks who rely on these businesses to sort of stay in operation to, to cover their rent, like what that ecosystem looks like. I mean, especially now that we're talking about a phased uh, reopening, I mean, is it, you know, are we looking, can they manage another 14 days at a time? Does it end up being, you know, we go another month and this whole thing collapses? I mean, how, how does the timeline actually impact this? Yeah, so I think if we're focusing mainly on retailers, right, and we're focusing on, if we're saying they're going to go to 25% occupancy, you know, 25% occupancy does not pay the bills. 25% of the business does not pay the bills. So if we're looking at uh, that sort of situation for six more months, it's not going to be a very pretty picture for a lot of businesses. Um, they're not going to be able to survive uh, without any government support and that's the big question people are looking right now to uh when is this going to be open but really how uh you know how can i take advantage of stimulus um to keep my doors open because without that and uh without this opening in the next month or two 
possibly two, uh, you're going to see a lot of businesses not come back after this. And of course, the banks have been, you know, offering forbearance for their commercial, you know, tenants for the landlords. I mean, and uh, once right. the tenants stop paying, then the landlords aren't going to be able to pay. It's it's going to get ugly, I think, pretty soon. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a great point. It definitely could if this continues and, you know, absent a, you know, herd immunity or a vaccine, it's expected to continue. But you brought up a good point about the lenders. So on the sale transaction side, you know, typically in East Baton Rouge Parish, we track sales uh, every week. You know, typically there's seven to eight sale transactions that close every week in East Baton Rouge. Well, last week there was one. So I've never seen that before since we started tracking uh, sales. And um, the good news is that as of now, you know, a lot of those sales transactions are just on pause. They're still under contract. They're still working through it. Uh, but because of lenders putting a pause on lending, um, the, the buyers are extending contracts. So these deals aren't dead. Hopefully there will be a flood of, uh, of transactions to close as this gets lifted and we come out on the other side of this. But right now, transactions are stalled and transaction volume and velocity is dramatically reduced. Thank you, Matthew, so much. Hopefully, hopefully those transactions will move. Matthew Laborde is a commercial realtor at Elephant Realty in Baton Rouge. Matthew, thanks so much for joining us today on Out to Lunch. Thanks for having me. You're listening to a special edition of Out to Lunch Louisiana with Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge, Christian Mater in Lafayette, and I'm Peter Raschuti in New Orleans. If you're in college or if you have kids in school, over the past couple of months, you've learned a new word and a new skill. The word is Zoom, and the skill is distance learning. Up until sometime in March 2020, if you wanted to get an education, you pretty much had to get out of the house and go to a classroom. Now you just have to go to your computer or even your phone and click Join Zoom Meeting. And there you are, with the same teacher, the same lesson, and even the same kids in your class. And it's all going on in the comfort of your own home. Why would you ever go back to a classroom again? Let's put that question to someone whose life is intimately bound up with its answer. Tanya Tetlow is president of Loyola University in New Orleans. Tanya, when Netflix started up, it didn't totally destroy the experience of going to a movie theater, but it has changed movie going forever. Distance learning by Zoom seems like it might do the same thing for education. Do you see this Zoom classroom revolution as having a permanent effect on education, or is it just a, a COVID convenience? I, I actually don't see this having an overnight impact on online education. There are lots of students who've been studying online for a good long while, and online education at its best is incredibly interactive and engaging. It really helps a lot of folks who are working full-time and juggling families and other obligations to go to higher to, to get degrees. But this has been a far more retrofitted online experience for classes that really started on the ground and we're doing our best to teach them online. And at a moment when students are sort of trapped in their houses. So I don't know that they'll have such great um, uh, ideas of what this is because it's not our best version of online. I also think that a lot of what undergraduate experience offers is about the sense of community of students being together physically. And so they are very much missing that. They learn as much from each other as they do from the faculty. So our job now is to figure out how to replicate that virtually and how to get back on campus as quickly as we can. 
And Tanya, I don't know if you've made that announcement yet or not. I know Tulane's made the announcement to start up in the fall, but how do you make a decision like that? That's, that's going to have so many components to it. Well, we really can't. I mean, we're all speaking with great hopes and aspirations, but um, I, I have an email about to go to students today that starts with, I really wish I could take away all of the uncertainty that you're facing, but it's not within my power. Um, we are very much hoping and planning to be on the ground in the fall, but I think what we've all come to realize is there's no world where we go back to normal operations, that we will have to do it with this careful social di distancing, and that um, the nature of a campus is that we are all together physically, that we're in classrooms and dining halls and residence halls. So we have a lot of work to do and we're working furiously at it to understand the new reality of how we do this safely. Tanya, we've heard a lot from, um you know, given a lot of guidance to businesses about how they're supposed to do this. Are are the higher education organizations providing any guidance to y'all? I mean, as to what it really physically looks like, especially with respect to, say, dormitories or, you know, cafeterias, how you're going to do this? And at what point do you have to pull the trigger and make the call? I mean, do you have to know for sure by July 1? Because certainly... By August 1, it's too late, you know. I, I, for us, uh, locally, we tend to start mid-August. So, yes, I think early July is when we really have to make decisions so people can plan and make travel plans. Um, most of our students come from out of state. And um, we are getting guidance, uh, increasing guidance from state public health authorities, from um, national associations of education are trying to give that guidance. Um, but until we really have some idea of the kinds of density that will be allowed, it is difficult to plan. We are making about eight different plans in the alternative, depending on what the rules turn out to be. Uh, this is Christian Tanya. I, you know, something that I've observed is that distance learning has been something that some universities take advantage of as like almost like a profit center. Um, you know, they're able to market further out, right? Um, I mean, do you anticipate that this, I, I know you said you're kind of retrofitting uh, the Loyola experience now, right? But, but do you see that maybe this is an opportunity to try and sort of offer a bigger suite of services that might actually help the university in the long run? Loyola did that in the last few years, actually, when we went through an enrollment downturn that was just sort of a function of strategic error, and we fixed it. But in the meantime, we stood up online versions of much of what we offer, and we did it with our existing faculty. And so that has been a real advantage to us now because it means that more of our faculty are trained on how to do online teaching really well, and it's helped us be more flexible during these times. Um, we are thinking now about the, the marketplace of 18-year-olds coming to college was already on the decline because there's just a population downturn hitting a peak at 2008 when the recession hit. Um, people had a lot fewer children. We may see that impact again in 18 years from now. And so... Um, and then overnight, because of the economic impact of the pandemic, we may see as much as some polls are showing a 20% drop in the students who intended to go to college who will no longer go to college. And so for all of us, there's this incredible shrinking in the market. It will hit each of us differently. Um, but we have to look to how we do certificate programs, how we help um, 
workers, adults who may need to pivot careers because there's this massive unemployment rate of how we offer online programs um, that, that people are able to take in more flexible ways. But you're right. We have to be nimble about this or else all of higher ed is in deep trouble. And there is some there are some estimates that of the 4,000 colleges and universities in the country that as many of them as 500 may close within a year or two. So much of, of what I take to be how universities, let's say, crassly compete with each other has been sort of the, the, the campus life, right? Going and saying, like, if we build this great new dining hall, the students will come here. If we enhance the public experience, it'll be wonderful. I mean, clearly, as, as we kind of pivot to more universities offering more distance learning options, I mean, how do you separate yourself from something that feels so similar everywhere. I mean, every Zoom call seems to be basically the same, right? So how does Loyola University say our Zoom classes are better than everybody else's? Part of it is that it isn't just about Zoom classes. It's about really engaging, creative, thoughtful online courses. And that requires an awful lot of work on the front end. So our faculty will be working really hard this summer, um, not just to plan for online courses, but to have to plan in the alternative. And I think one thing we're realizing is that on the ground courses will necessarily be hybrid, that to spread ourselves more thinly, we may have half, you know, half the class watches the lecture online one day and then flips um, the next day, that, that we have to be creative in ways that I hope will make our teaching better for the long run, that we'll get the best versions of technology that really challenge us from delivering the same lecture for the same notes you've had for 20 years and make you do it in a much more engaging and specific way. But to answer your question, right, it's not about the famous lazy rivers on campuses. And, and those are the institutions really competing for the wealthiest students who are sort of driven by that privilege. For schools um, like ours, where we have a broad range of, of people's uh, financial backgrounds, that is sort of representative of the country. So we don't educate only the top 1%, and we have about a third of our students are first in their family to go to college. For us, the competition has been all around price. So we have these high sticker prices of tuition, but we discount very heavily, and the average discount right now for private universities is 50%. Schools like ours are even higher than that. And so um, the problem is at a moment like this, that race to the bottom on price, which is good for students and opportunities, but if it kills enough institutions because we can't actually deliver um, well uh, when we get less and less tuition from each student, it's just not feasible. Um, that, that, that's the real issue. And that was already happening, and now this may be a giant speeding up of that process this summer. Uh, Tanya, uh, are there meetings, I don't say secret meetings or whatever, between all the university presidents about what their plans are for the fall? Do you have like uh, surveys or such to see where people are going? Uh, the, the New Orleans area university presidents do speak to each other fairly regularly. And, and that started, I remember I pulled together the first meeting two days after Mardi Gras, um, that we all realized we needed to be planning very quickly. Um, and uh, I think for us as a Jesuit university, I speak once a week to all the presidents of the other Jesuit universities from Georgetown to Marquette, uh, and we share a lot of planning. But yes, I think everyone is in the mode of reaching out to each other and trying to figure out things we haven't thought of and, and um, really guess at the future. It takes a mix of really good strategy and planning and a crystal ball. And, and Tanya, I know that a lot of schools, you know, I mean, they rely on like foreign students sometimes to pay the full freight that you mentioned. 
Um, they have, you know, their, their profit centers are in things like their dining hall or in their residence halls where they're able to make mark up, you know, or, or through athletics, some of which is going to be canceled. I mean, I just don't see a clear, a clear path forward through this, um, especially when we don't even know, you know, if airline flights are going to be available to get students from, you know, out of state, much less from, you know, around the country. Um, I mean, how bad do you think this might really be? It, for higher ed. It's, it's an existential threat to higher ed, and it's also a threat to losing a generation of college students in ways that will hurt the economy in this country for a very long time, that we will suddenly overnight become less competitive in a knowledge-based global economy. And I feel like this could be the GI Bill in reverse, where we have an overnight and this time drop plummeting of the percentage of Americans who are college educated. So it's, it's critical, and Congress did provide some funding for higher education in the last CARES Act. We're asking for a lot more because we are infrastructure of the economy, not just right now in our direct spending, which is pretty massive nationwide and the jobs we provide, but in terms of educating generations of Americans to compete globally, um, we can't lose that ground. Tanya Tetlow is the president of Loyola University in New Orleans. Tanya, thank you so much for joining us on Out to Lunch, Louisiana. Oh, thank you. And thank you for joining us for this special edition of Out to Lunch, Louisiana. We edited these conversations to fit in the time slot here on your NPR station. And you can hear longer versions wherever you normally get your Out to Lunch podcast. If you're not an Out to Lunch podcast subscriber, search for Out to Lunch, Out to Lunch Baton Rouge, or Out to Lunch Acadiana on your podcast app. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical director is Eric Merle. Photos from the show on our website and social media are taken by Jill LaFleur. I'm Christian Mader in Lafayette. And I'm Peter Raschuti in New Orleans. And I'm Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge. If you're in an essential industry or you're able to return to work, remember to take care of yourself. If you're not going to work, stay home, stay safe, and we'll see you back here next week for more Out to Lunch, Louisiana. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by... Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. Right.